Um, but in my experience um, traveling, I'm beginning to understand there are many reasons why the countries that didn't speak of the Holocaust for so long are beginning. First of all, there's a sense of urgency. I went to my high school reunion recently, I won't tell you how many years, and um, I asked my friends, how did we learn about the Holocaust? Because I'm the child of a survivor, I don't remember a time I didn't know about it. So how did we learn about it? And their answer was, your father taught us. So we in the United States hadn't been teaching the Holocaust. There's a sense of urgency now, because frankly, the direct witnesses, the survivors, the camp liberators, aren't gonna be with us much longer. And so there is a sense, you see it in people trying to record testimonies, um, you see it in the proliferation of movies, tackling different parts of history, you see it in art exhibits, you see it in many different um, cultural expressions, how now is the time we must deal with the Holocaust because we need to bear witness. Now that's the good news. The bad news is I just got back from Estonia yeah. and Lithuania also. Lithuania um, in 2011 declared the year, the year of remembrance of victims of the Holocaust. This was huge for Lithuania, the country that killed the highest percentage of their Jews during the Holocaust. Um, this was a huge thing, and all year they did programming. And the ITF yeah. should be uh, commended, because together the State Department and the ITF have funded pretty um, aggressive uh, and comprehensive teaching teachers yeah. how to teach the Holocaust. So there's a great awakening. On the other hand, um, as the perpetrators and others get older, people are into, uh, not forgiving, but, oh, come on, they're old people. Yeah. And so we're seeing parades in Estonia and Latvia, where Waffen-SS in yeah. uniform march down the street to cheering crowds. We see a bill in Estonia that is trying to define the collaborators, the Waffen-SS collaborators with the Nazis as freedom fighters. So on one hand, we see great steps forward. The recognition of uh, coming to terms with their role and responsibility. And on the other hand, there is a bit of revisionism and relativism um, happening, if not denial, um, happening. So I find it a mixed bag as I travel. Um, and I understand why it's taken longer for uh, the former Soviet Union uh, countries to have to come to terms with it. I also agree with all the former speakers that it's not easy. It is extremely difficult to figure out which piece of information is appropriate for what age level and how you put it into a, a country's context and consciousness in honest, and honestly and accurately deal with the history. So it's not easy. I give them a lot of leeway in the fact 
that it's only recently that they're coming to terms. But we have to be vigilant, and that's why I really salute what you will be doing, Sam, and what UNESCO is doing by focusing on Holocaust education, because while countries are having a hard time, they need guidance, and they need expertise, and if not, now when? Well, for those of you who don't know, I'm, um, I'm the representative from the United States State Department, and my job as Special Envoy is to both monitor and combat anti-Semitism. So I came in with a very distinct thing that I, set of things I wanted to do. Uh, first of all, the United States Congress told me what I had to do. <laughs> I have to report on anti-Semitism in 193 countries. And of course, that's very difficult. We have a whole, you know, yep. embassies and all that help. Um, but I soon learned that people don't really know what anti-Semitism is. So it became an educational job. But the combat part of my title, I knew that the way to have a greater impact on truly combating anti-Semitism was not mobilizing Jews to fight anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. It was to get non-Jews, civic leaders, political leaders, religious leaders that aren't Jews, to be the um, voice to condemn anti-Semitism and all forms of hatred, and I take that responsibility. So I'm often quoted and out front in condemning Islamophobia or condemning acts against Christians yeah. or Baha'i or Hindu, and the list goes on. Um, so the way I, I know that in my short tenure, in this fabulous position that the president has afforded me, I will not eradicate anti-Semitism, the oldest continual hatred. My goal, however, is to just move the needle a little bit. And that means mobilizing other people to do it. Um, let me tell you some ways that I have found it helpful when dealing with Muslim-majority countries um, and organizations. One is to highlight the fact that Muslims saved Jews. Not very many, but Muslims saved Jews during World War II. Albania saved every one of their Jews, and they were the only Muslim-majority country. When I told that to my ima the imams I brought to Auschwitz, they didn't know that. It was shocking news to them. And I realized there is a whole other part of the story and narrative they need to know about. If the Holocaust never happened, then they don't know about courageous Muslims. If they learn about courageous Muslims, they learn that the Holocaust happened. That was one. Secondly, um, you, talked, you mentioned the Netherlands. Very few places in the world are we finding right now Jews and Muslims working together on something of common interest, like poverty. Well, in the Netherlands, there's a piece of legislation that would prohibit ritual slaughter that happens to matter to Muslims for their halal practice and Jews because of kosher practice. 
a common issue, they're actually working together in the Netherlands. It's the only country I know of where they're actually working together on that piece of legislation. It doesn't teach the Holocaust, but it builds relationship. I work for the State Department. We're in the relationship business. And the third example is a bit controversial. And that is that many of the um, Arab nations in part of their education, never mind that they don't teach the Holocaust, they still teach the protocols of the elders of Zion, the old czarist forgery that has, you know, Hitler used a lot, but it, it paints the um, picture of a world conspiracy, the Jews have a conspiracy to take over the world. Well, when you break down the protocols to the four major points in there, they are, Jews plan to take over the world. Jews want to impose their laws on everyone else. Jews uh, want to control the financial dealings of um, everybody. And the third is the communication systems, and we can today say media. And if you look at some of the Islamophobia that is being fomented um, around the world, it focuses on a conspiracy to take over the world, the imposition of Sharia law, the, we have to watch their finances because they're moving money around to support terrorism, and the third is the growth of the satellite television uh, that covers all the extremists. Now, it is a stretch, but when you have this discussion with Muslim leaders, and you say, if this goes unchecked, let me tell you what happens. The protocols of the elders of Zion led to decades and decades of pogroms. It led to the Holocaust. It led to today a majority of people in Arab, the Arab world thinking Jews were responsible for 9-11. If it goes unanswered, we know what happens. And to encourage them, by example, to condemn the kind of conspiracy theories, etc., that are being labeled on Muslims today. These are three ways that I have found promising when um, humanizing the, the subject matter with Muslim leadership.